Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent presentation at the International Society for Quality of Life Studies annual conference titled COVID-19, Virtual Labor, and Economic and Employee Well-Being in the Future of Work. I'm going to be uh, talking about COVID-19 virtual labor, economic uh, and employee well-being in the future of work. And I'm using data that's a little bit older um, because I don't have any current data in relation to, to um, what we're discussing today. Um, but I'll, I'll walk you through what that data looks like and where you can get access to it. Um, and then I'll make implications or, or, or draw implications from the, the research to talk about what we can do to address um, the nature of work moving forward and how things might be shifting um, as we come out of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, a little bit about myself, uh, I'm managing partner and principal at Human Capital Innovations, uh, an organizational leadership and uh, people management consulting firm with 20 uh, plus years of, of experience in that area. Um, on the practitioner side, on the academic side, I'm chair and associate professor of organizational leadership in uh, the Woodbury School of Business at Utah Valley University. I'm also the academic director of our Center for Social Impact and a faculty fellow for Ethics and Public Life and our Center for the Study of Ethics. Um, I'm not going to actually read this slide um, because it's a big, long, busy slide, um, but just uh, refer you back to the program for my, uh, for my abstract. Uh, and what I hope to cover uh, throughout this presentation. So let me just dive right on in. Um, and really, I want to start with my framing. My framing for this entire topic um, and what I hope to come from it. And it starts with a bias towards having a people-centric organization. Uh, and I, I bring a human capital perspective to that. So what I mean by that is just like organizations have all different forms of capital at its disposal to be able to, to bring about the purposes of the organization, um, that could take the form of financial capital, that can you know, be intellectual property, intellectual capital, that can be plant equipment, um, property, you know, all these different forms. Well, one of those forms of capital is human capital. And just like I would be very willing to invest in a, a, a really expensive piece of equipment, um, I would be willing to maintain that piece of equipment. I'd be willing to upgrade that piece of equipment in order to help the organization be successful. So too should I be willing to invest in my people. Uh, and if I have a people-centric culture and a people-centric approach in my leadership, that means I will see 
by people as an asset, not in terms of like this manipulable um, cog that I can, um, you know, pull levers to try to get them to do what I want, like a piece of machinery. That's not what I'm referring to, but in the sense of that we, we want to invest in it, just like other forms of, of assets, other forms of capital. Uh, and we, we need to uh, reinvigorate our human capital, just like we would any other form of capital. Uh, and as we have that mindset, uh, then that will lead to different approaches to how we run our organizations and how we interact with our people. It'll fundamentally shift the nature of those relationships. And uh, if we can remember that our people are, they provide intangible uh, value to an organization, even beyond some of the hard metrics that we can use to measure their value, you know, in terms of um, uh, like in a, uh, retention costs, for example, or what it costs to hire someone, get them um, up to speed in the job. These are, are uh, metrics that we can use and organizations do use to understand, you know, the, the value or the cost related to an individual employee or if they were to leave the organization. There's all sorts of other things though that are harder to measure, but are equally as important uh, as we try to, um, you know, recognize what employees bring to the table. And ultimately it's the employees, it's the people that are going to drive creativity and innovation that will drive greater levels of customer loyalty, better products and services, uh, and help the organization to be successful. So that's here what you see in this simple diagram is really a summary of a tremendous amount of research. Um, so each of the each of the arrows represent a whole bunch of research that that demonstrates that causal link. Um, so we start with meaningful work, interesting work, interesting jobs. That leads to more satisfied workers. That leads to more satisfied customers, higher sales, higher profits. More satisfied workers lead, leads to low absenteeism, lower turnover, lower costs, and higher profits. On the other side of the diagram, um, we see knowledge sharing. There's a lot of research around what that means to have a knowledge sharing culture uh, and a people-centric high-performance work system. When you have a high, high knowledge sharing culture, that leads to greater levels of innovation, greater productivity, which leads to higher quality, better customer um, satisfaction, higher sales higher profits. Um, and this is just a, a small subset of some of the types of relationships that I could highlight in relation to the value and the benefits of having a people-centric organization. So it's really important for organizational leaders to consider this and to give the people in their organizations um, their due uh, in terms of creating good work environments, in terms of paying them fairly, uh, in terms of giving them fair benefits, in terms of um, making sure that they have good employer-employee relations and everything else in, in connection to that. Uh, I also wanted to frame this in terms of the types of shifts that we've seen happening and that are continuing to come uh, in the midst of this pandemic and even before the pandemic hit us. Um, we've, we've seen technological innovations influencing shifting working conditions for a long time. In fact, as we consider um, the impact of the industrial revolution on the nature of war, and now we're, you know, we talk about the fourth industrial revolution uh, and the continued technological ad advancements uh, in com computing capacity, 
the cost of memory, um, the rise of AI and machine learning, and all of these different types of innovations that are fundamentally going to shift um, the very nature of work, the types of jobs that people do, how they perform those jobs, uh, et cetera. Uh, and this has been happening, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a continual process, really. It, it's never stopped happening. Um, but in relation to some of these specific current technologies, like um, the ability to meet virtually for a conference like this, um, and even enhance types of virtual presence um, technologies that are emerging, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and such. Really, over the last decade, we've seen such a huge emergence of these technologies that already started to shift the nature of work. But the pandemic has put us in a situation where those who were maybe perhaps um, slow to adopt these technologies, um, they were resistant to these technologies, um, now they've been put in a situation where they have to find ways to adapt and they have to adopt the technologies to move, just to stay afloat and to, to move forward. And that necessarily is going to change the, the nature of work and how employees perform their work moving forward. So just like we're doing this conference virtually and so many workers are working virtually and from home right now, um, the pendulum has swung so far over to that side uh, in of the spectrum in terms of the use of technology that just because we get our our grips around this pandemic and we get a vaccine and and we have uh, healthy safe work environments again where people can return to the physical workspace just because that will be an option that doesn't mean the pendulum is going to swing all the way back to where it was before the pandemic and uh, so in some ways the pandemic has done us uh, a service in terms of forcing people to adopt these technologies so I just wanted to add that to my general framing for how we're understanding this discussion today and in relation to that is also the skills that are going to be needed in the future workplace. So we have all these different drivers of change in this broader global contextual environment, an increasingly computational world, superstructured organizations, increased global interconnectivity, new media, um, the rise of machines and technology, and, and just demographic extreme longevity, uh, people living and working longer. And so in the middle of this diagram, you see all of these different skills that are gonna be needed increasingly uh, within the workforce. Cognitive load management, virtual collaboration, uh, new media literacy, cross-cultural competencies, uh, adaptive and novel thinking, sense-making, design thinking, and transdisciplinarity or interdisciplinarity. Uh, and we need people that are adaptable across fields, uh, people that can apply these skill sets in a variety of different contexts if, if we as individuals want to be employable and as organizations want to be competitive into the future. So that brings me then to the nature of this specific research. Um, and I would refer you to a recent research brief that we put out uh, at Human Capital Innovations, Designing Work During COVID-19 Implications for Managers and the Future of Work, uh, where I summarize some of this. And this is a very practitioner-oriented um, uh, document. And so you'll see towards the end of my presentation today, time permitting, um, some of those kind of practical applications of this research and, and what managers and leaders should be thinking about uh, as it relates to all of this. Uh, but I would refer you to that report. It's free on our website. 
Um, so now let me talk about the data and uh, the research that has been uh, underway for a, a long time now. Um, you may be familiar with the International Social Survey Program. Uh, each year they put out really great modules on a whole variety of topics. Uh, I've worked primarily with the work orientations data. Um, the first wave was 1989, then 1997, 2005. The most recent available data set was 2015. And then they have another wave that should be happening, I think, in another couple of years. Um, so it's, it hasn't been completely consistent, but around you know, eight to 10 years between waves has been kind of the norm. And it's publicly available. Uh, you can register, you can get access to the data, and there's all sorts of really amazing, great insights that you can gain from this, da this data set. Uh, what I'm going to be presenting to you today is specifically the 2015 wave, though I have worked um, a lot with, with um, uh, looking at the 89, 97, 2000, and 2015 wave all in conjunction with each other. There is some variation across waves in terms of the types of questions and the way the questions um, are framed and the data is collected, but for the most part, it's pretty consistent. And so you can do lots of really nice um, non-panel longitudinal types of analyses across countries um, looking, you know, over a, you know, a 30 plus 40 year period. It's, it's a really rich set of data. Um, in this graphic, you can just see the countries in, in the global map. You can see the countries that were involved in this data, um, this wave of the work orientations data. Uh, 37 countries. Um, oh, before I go to the model, let me just talk a little bit more about um, the sampling. Um, this is secondary data, of course, so I, I wasn't able to do my own sampling, uh, but they use stratified probability sampling across um, each of the 37 countries. Um, I specifically looked at uh, in, uh, individuals within those countries that were currently employed, given the nature of the research and trying to understand the nature of work. Um, so I excluded um, individuals that were not employed, but I did include self-employed individuals as well as uh, individuals uh, that worked for small family businesses, uh, small entrepreneurial types of work, gig work, but also um, larger uh, traditional organizations across sectors and industries. Um, and each, each country uh, carried out its own data collection um, which was carried out by a research, um, uh, primary researchers within that given country. Uh, there is uh, work done in terms of cross-cultural um, uh, work on the survey to make sure it's translated in, in comparable uh, cross-cultural contexts around uh, the, the, the items within the surveys and how they were carried out. In some countries, it was carried out uh, via in-person um, interview questionnaire in other countries. It was, it was a mail-out type of a uh, survey. Um, uh, but you can find all of the documentation on the International Social Survey Program work orientations um, on the website. Um, and again, I'm referring today specifically to the 2015 wave, even though you can do lots of great um, comparisons over time. Here is the... Uh, the theoretical framework and model. Uh, for sake of time, I'm gonna gloss over, I'm not gonna go into great detail on any of this, but I, I wanted to, to share with you, um, you know, the major components uh, of, of what this looks like. 
And given that we had a richness of data across countries, you know, usually with about 800 to 1,000 working uh, respondents within those countries, so that those are the samples within each country, uh, I had a rich set of country-specific contextual variables to, to consider um, and country-specific cultural variables. The country uh, contextual variables were um, gathered from a variety of different sources like the, uh, the, uh, the CIA World Factbook, um, the OECD, and other similar types of international data sets for um, geopolitical and socioeconomic types of uh, variables that provide you know, uh, more of a country context. Um, and then country-specific cultural variables were pulled from the GLOBE study and uh, looking at cross-cultural differences. Um, so those, those, that data came outside of the International Social Survey. And then everything here um, from individual controls, key independent variables and the dependent variable were all from within that, the International Social Survey. Um, and you know, there are some limitations based on what's available in the survey. There were, there were things I would like to include in the model that I wasn't able to just because of um, lack of consistent availability across countries. Some countries had a particular control variable, other countries didn't have that control variable, et cetera. Um, but you can see the, the variables that I included here. And for more detail on how they were operationalized, um, you can find all that documentation on the um, International Social Survey Program website. Um, so gender, age, education, marital status, size of family, uh, work hours, job classification, supervisory status, employment relationship, and um, uh, whether they're in public or private uh, sectors um, were those key uh, control variables. And then really the, the main variables of interest to me, um, generally, as it relates to the nature of work, but specifically in relation to this COVID type of world that we're in and how we prepare for a post-COVID world. So we have all these work-life balance variables that are really interesting. Um, working from home, working weekends, schedule flexibility, flexibility to deal with family matters, and um, work interfering with family life. Uh, then we have a variety of intrinsic uh, rewards, interesting work, job autonomy, helping others, uh, my job is useful to society, extrinsic variables, job security, pay, promotional opportunities, physical effort, work stress, and work relations, uh, relationship with coworkers, relationship with management, contact with others, uh, and then discrimination and harassment variables, uh, if they've experienced that. And so for each of these key independent variables, these were one to seven Likert scales, um, single item indicators. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have the benefit of having um, uh, multi-item um, uh, measures for each of these uh, constructs, uh, but there are, they are single item indicators. Um, and again, you can find all the details on the operationalization of those variables on the uh, International Social Survey website. And then our key dependent variable for this particular um, study was job satisfaction on a, on a one to seven um, scale. Sorry, I said I said all these key independent variables were on a one to seven, I believe, just a minute ago. They're, they're all on a one to five scale. And then jobs to, job satisfaction is on a one to seven scale. Um, so just really quickly, by way of some really quick cross-country, um, cross-national kind of comparisons, just looking at descriptively differences across you know, job satisfaction by country, um, you can see variation in mean job satisfaction scores. 
uh, across all of these different countries included in the 2015 uh, data. And the, the blue bars, of course, are each country's uh, job satisfaction, and the orange line represents the global mean. And you can see countries that you know are above or below the mean, um, and a lot of countries that are hovering right around that mean level. Um, interestingly, you have countries like uh, Venezuela, uh, Switzerland, Mexico, Austria, with the highest levels of, of mean job satisfaction within their country. And then you have countries uh, like China, uh, Japan, and uh, Poland that have uh, relatively the lowest levels. In and of itself, these mean scores don't mean a lot, uh, but it's, it's in interesting just for a quick you know, snapshot of cross-national differences in, in job satisfaction. Here you can see the OLS regression of job satisfaction and main study variables. So the building of the model with the different um, uh, control variables, and then um, the intrinsic variables, the extrinsic variables, the work relation variables, and the work-life balance variables all added in turn, and then the combined model. I also ran models across each country, so uh, that's really hard to present in a slideshow like this. Um, you know, as you look at regression results across 37 different countries. But um, suffice it to say, for the, the purposes of this presentation, um, you can see uh, how the the combined model for all countries in one um, combined analysis, how that shakes out in terms of the significance of the different um, variables. I think particularly in relation to the COVID discussion, these work from home, these, oh, sorry, not work from home, but the work-life balance variables, which includes work from home, um, all the work-life balance variables are interesting to look at and then comparing, you know, cross-national differences in significance and coefficient strength, of, you know, across countries, but also some of these intrinsic variables like um, job autonomy that has applicability to a virtual workforce. Um, being able to help others, job useful to society, interesting work. I think those are all really important. And then also um, some relationship uh, variables can also be important to consider. Do we have the uh, ability um, to continue to develop and maintain relationships in a post-COVID environment with more virtual work? These are the types of questions we should be asking and that we should be exploring you know, longitudinally with um, respondents across countries to understand the impact of COVID and the impact of, of technology-driven work. Um, in this uh, slide, you can just see the, um, the adjusted R-squared uh, comparisons by country. So again, it's hard to show all the regression results by country in a quick fashion, um, but you can see the model fit across country. Again, the blue line, the blue bars are for each country individually, the orange line is the, the average across countries, or sorry, not even the average, but just the, the adjusted R squared for all countries in the combined model. And you can see the model fits better uh, for some countries than others. You have countries like the Philippines where, where the adjusted R squared is only 0.15. So, so the model only accounts for 15% of the variability in job satisfaction. Um, in China, it's 0.27, uh, Taiwan 0.31, and Suriname, it's 0.24. Um, but then you have other countries like Australia, 
um, uh, Sweden, uh, the United Kingdom, um, and some of these others like Finland, some Nordic countries in particular, where you have an, a much higher adjusted R squared. Um, and so the variability in job satisfaction being predicted by the model is much, much higher um, in the high 50 to 60, you know, mid 60% range. Uh, it, but then globally, it's, it's around 42% uh, model uh, predictability model fit. Um, so I think that's really interesting in and of itself, that it tells us that kind of this Western-centric model that I um, displayed a few slides ago in terms of these intrinsic and extrinsic rewards and work-life balance uh, variables and, and uh, work relation variables, there's so much literature showing that all of those variables are really important and that they drive so much of the work-life experience um, that we should be considering, yet that, that common model doesn't fit particularly well in places like the Philippines or China. Um, and so we need to be very careful with how we apply models cross-nationally because, because they just, they're not universal um, and, and context matters. That's, that's one of the key points. I'm not presenting in this, in this presentation either um, the second level analysis using hierarchical, hierarchical linear modeling um, that allows us to look at the impact of those, um, those country specific variables and the cultural variables and how they impact um, uh, all of this. Uh, that's another layer of analyses and, and uh, adds more complexity to this that we don't have time to for today. But, it, but it's important to recognize the role of context uh, and how it does change the way we understand all of this across the world. So what I experience here in the United States is simply just not the same as what it's like in Nordic countries or in Asian countries um, or even within regions, you know, different, you have a lot of cross uh, national differences in context and cultures that drive differences. I should also mention, um, I, I meant to refer to it here on this slide. Um, I, I used OLS regression for ease of interpretation of the coefficients um, and the significance. Um, ordered probit um, uh, would be most appropriate uh, for this kind of an analysis, uh, but given the nature of the, the the variable for job satisfaction and the variables at play in the you know the, the key independent variables, um, there's a lot of research that that suggests that it's actually a uh, OLS regressions. It's much people are much more comfortable with the interpretation of those um, results and when you have variables like a one to seven Likert scale for job satisfaction, where you can pretty much con uh, consider it like a continuous variable, um, that OLS is a good uh, proxy, a good substitute. I've run all of these analyses and ordered probit um, regressions as well, um, both for the combined models as well as for each individual country. And I, I can confirm that, that uh, the results are, are, are essentially the same, um, it's just, easier to present it this way. People tend to understand it better this way. Um, so I wanted to share that. Um, now, in terms, there's, there's lots of limitations we could talk about. Um, and I'd, I want to take the rest of my time, uh, the rest of my limited time to really get into some of the practical application though. Um, so if anyone has questions, you know, in the Q&A period, we can talk about the limitations um, and some of the me methodological stuff if you have more detailed questions. Um, but I, I think in relation to this COVID world that we're in, we can see in these last 
in this slide um, the importance of these intrinsic factors, relational factors, work-life balance factors. They, they're very significant. They drive uh, important contributions to job satisfaction and understanding job satisfaction across nationally. And this was five, five years ago, right? When this data was collected. Um, if I had the luxury of having the same data right now, pre, like pre-COVID in January, February, of 2020 and then now like mid COVID and then we can look at post COVID, I would sus suspect to see some super interesting things in relation to this mix in, in this model in, in terms of what uh, it looks like um, for workers and what their expectations are and how it impacts their, their job satisfaction. Um, right now we just have to kind of draw inferences uh, from the 2015 data. But questions for organizational leaders I think are really important. How do we create meaningful work? How do we enhance job autonomy in the workplace? How do we make sure that our employees have an opportunity to do what they do well each and every day and have control over how they do it? This was important when we're working together physically, but this is even more important now that so many people are working virtually. How do we make sure people feel purpose and have meaning in their work in a virtual environment? How do we make sure that they have enhanced job autonomy and that we're not trying to micromanage them virtually? Uh, and then all sorts of work-life balance types of considerations. In terms of working from home, the last presentation talked quite a bit about this. Um, but what types of, what aspects of, of one's job is, is amenable to you know, a work from home type of a situation? Um, and how can organizations build that more into what people are doing even post COVID? So once everything's safe and people can return to a physical workplace, there are so many benefits from being able to work from home, particularly for parents uh, who have children um, uh, and particularly for women uh, because so many women bear uh, a disproportionate burden of childcare and household um, duties and those sorts of things that having the ability to work from home, uh, at least a, somewhat, uh, can can really help in terms of uh, an employee's overall motivation, their engagement, their job satisfaction. Uh, similarly, with schedule flexibility, if if people are working virtually, you need certain coverage, right? Depending on the type of job, you need to cover certain hours. Maybe they need to respond to customers or clients. You need to hold meetings. You need, you know, that sort of thing. But a lot of the work we do, it doesn't really matter when we do it. And so having the flexibility to do your work when you can, so that if, if you're stuck at home with a bunch of kids who are doing virtual school during COVID, that you can help your kids in the morning and then you know, maybe you wake up extra early and you do work and then help your kids later in the morning and then take a break from work and then start working in the afternoon into the evening a little bit. Having those types of flexible working arrangements can make a big difference and be life, uh, you know, life or death for, for employees uh, in terms of how they get their work done. Flexibility to deal with family matters. Again, same thing. Um, we need to be able to uh, make sure that people have the flexibility to address the types of needs that they have um, as they're balancing work, life, friends, school, everything in this moment. Uh, reducing interference, uh, work interference with family and having weekends off. Lots of, in addition to the research that I've conducted, there's lots of evidence and lots of other research to show the benefits of these factors. Um, and it holds, you know, it, it 
the, the impacts are a little bit different across countries, but it holds across countries that these are important factors that we need to consider um, when uh, trying to design uh, effective, meaningful work for employees. I could go on and on and on, but I want to give uh, more of a chance for questions at this point. So I will be quiet and uh, just try to respond to any questions that you might have. And please feel free to reach out to me even offline. For those of you who aren't watching this live, feel free to reach out to me at john.westover.gmail.com and we can have a, a discussion about any of this research, any of the results. And you can find um, more details about all this research, um, links you know, out to my peer-reviewed articles and my Google Scholar um, profile. You just search for Jonathan Westover, I'll come right up. Uh, or you can go to my um, my company website, innovativehumancapital.com, and we have lots of research briefs and we research one shots um, or one sheets and snapshots that summarize a lot of this research and hopefully in a really digestible, practitioner-oriented way. So that the goal is that leaders can um, pick up some of these research one sheets or snapshots and digest it quickly, understand it, you know, within five minutes and then have a few key takeaways that they can then improve the, their, um, how, how they interact with their employees uh, in a regular uh, basis. So please, please check out the, the uh, greater detail on any of this research in those places. I published probably 15 to 20 articles um, in peer reviewed journals just on the various waves of the International Social Survey work orientations data. It's a super rich data set. Um, and I highly recommend you check it out if you're not familiar with it already. All right, so I'll be quiet. Let's take some questions. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, are there any questions from the uh, attendees? Don't see any questions popping up yet. Um, now I'll start again with my own question uh, that I have for you. Many thanks for your very interesting presentation. I think that you touched upon very uh, important developments that we see in in, in the realm of work. Uh, what I was interested in is also in your opinion. You you showed. Uh, some some important questions also for for employers uh, and 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 uh, people in business. What are your thoughts about so there there is also occupations that are about to disappear. So we will I, probably in the coming decades we will see robotization and automation and probably COVID nineteen will only accelerate this, this development because also of the need for social distancing. So what is your view for, in, in, especially in terms of meaningful work for those people for whom there is maybe not meaningful work anymore in the coming uh, decades? Is that something that business should also address or is that more something for public policy? Yeah, well, a great question. And maybe, so in my response to that, maybe I'll go back to this slide. Um, because I think as we consider the disruption in the labor market and we consider the types of jobs that people are performing and the shifts in work and the professions, you know, technology is definitely um, one of the major drivers. There's other drivers, of course, as you see in this diagram. Um, 
but things are just going to be different and there's going to be a lot of displaced workers to your point right to your question there's there's a lot of jobs as they exist today that won't even exist in 10 years um there's a there's whole entire professions that are probably going to be drastically changed and perhaps even kind of fade away or you know at least be tremendously changed and then whole new professions that we probably haven't even conceived of yet um it's and it's hard to know what we don't know you know about the future it's hard it's hard to um really predict we don't have a crystal ball but i i do think there's some good news in the in the nature of the of meaningful work and in, in the heart of your question um and maybe part of my framing is is related to my op generally optimistic view of the future um and you know i kind of consider there's two there's two ways to think about uh, disruptive technologies and their influence on the world one is kind of a dystopian um kind of view where you basically have like a terminator type of scenario where where artificial intelligence and machine learning become sentient and ultimately takes over the world and we just have this like a post-apocalyptic uh, experience. And that's, that's a really grim view of like the possibilities of the future <laughs> based on technology. But then you have like at this other end of the spectrum where you have like this Star Trek type of utopia where technology basically allows people to be less focused on survival and more focused on meaning and purpose and exploration. And I have to admit, my view is, is more closely aligned with the Star Trek approach to the future than like the dystopian Terminator approach. And I think largely the disruption in the workplace and with work and the way technology is going to influence that, I think is largely probably going to be good for employees um, because it, it will require upskilling. It will require people to, to learn um, new skills that maybe they don't have now. But the types of work that people are going to be doing in the future, I believe, will be less routinized. It will be less tedious, um, in large part because you're going to have machines and computers that are going to be able to do that work um, that currently we have people doing. Um, the, the more um, routine, the more algorithmic, the type of work that is being performed, um, the more that that's going to be easily easily replaced in the future um, using technology. Uh, that's scary because it causes displacement and causes causes realignment of labor markets and of of the labor force. But in the long run, I think that actually will be a good thing for workers. I think you'll you'll have people doing what what they're what they want to do. Um, doing stuff that's meaningful to them that can contribute back to society and um, where they're not doing all the tedious stuff that nobody really likes to do. So, I mean, that's kind of my general thought about the question. Um, obviously, I don't know any better than anyone else. You know, I, I don't have a crystal ball either, but that's my perspective. Many thanks. Are there any other questions? Yes, there's a question by Kelsey. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, thank you for your interesting presentation. Uh, if you could go to your regression results, uh, I think that would be helpful. So what I'm thinking about is whether or not, uh, or to what extent we can apply these results to today. And uh, if you look down towards the bottom, right, in the combined model, you know, you know working from home is not a statistically significant relationship. And yep. then you also see flexibility to deal with family matters coming in negative. 
um, you know, if, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, work interferes with family coming in positively. So, yeah, so let, actually, let me speak to that for just a moment. Yeah, um, I, I probably should have when I shared this slide. So it, that's an artifact of just the way the, the scale is set up in the questionnaire. So it's, it's actually the type of relationship we would expect to see. Um, so the more flexibility you have to deal with family matters, you have more, you have greater job satisfaction, but the, but they reverse the scale. Okay. The scale's reversed. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and same thing with, with the other one. Yeah. Okay. That makes much more sense. Um, okay. So that's very helpful. The other thing I think that might be helpful is if I understand this is just the 2015 and uh, you know, you have going back to, I think it was 1989. Yeah. I'm sure the variables have changed somewhat over time, but if you can uh, potentially in additional research, or maybe you've done this already, look at how the relationships have changed over yeah. time. So maybe we place more emphasis or especially women, as you mentioned, who often have say the double shift uh, emphasis on uh, you know, work flexibility. Uh, and so if you see stability and coefficients over time, then maybe it's more applicable today, or if something changes rapidly, then maybe it's not so applicable today. Yes. Great comment. And I have done that over time. So I, you're right. I didn't present that here. Um, but I, I've done quite a bit looking at, um, Again, it's it's not it's non-panel longitudinal, so it's not the same people in '89 that they then surveyed in '97 and 2005 and 2015. But it's largely the same questions. But there are also different countries. So in in '89, I believe, if I'm remembering off the top of my head correctly, there were 11 countries, and then in '97 it was like 18 countries, and 2005 it was 27 countries. In um, in in uh, 2015 it was 37 countries, and so. So there's a smaller subset of countries that have been involved in each wave that you can then compare over time. And then you can also, um, you can look at the variables. And here on, on this slide, you can see um, all of these uh, control variables are available across each wave. Um, all of the intrinsic and extrinsic variables are available across these, each wave. Um, Relations with coworkers and relations with management are available across each wave, but the other ones are not. And then several of these work-life balance variables are available across starting in like 2005 and then 2015, but they weren't even included in the first two waves. Um, and, and anyway, so that's a little bit of a context for the waves. And then um, given the variables that have been included in each wave, there's a tremendous amount of stability in terms of their significance and coefficient strength. Um, so in, in response to your question or, or your comment about, you know, what does this really tell us about today? Because of that long history of, of um, stability in, the, in, the, uh, in those variables, I do think that they're still consistently applicable today, even though I don't know that for sure, um, just based on what I've seen over the last several decades. Um, but some of these, you know, I, I, I can't say as firmly like some of these, um, some of these work-life balance variables that have only been included in a couple waves. And I do suspect that you would see something different. You know, if, if, if I looked, you know, if I had this data, if I was blessed enough to have data like this for January, 2020, and then like July, 2020, 
And then, you know, once all of this is done, I would expect there to be some, some shifts, right? Particularly with those work-life balance types of variables uh, and, the, and the, the importance that they play in predicting satisfaction. So anyways, that, that was a long-winded response to your comment, but uh, I did want to reinforce, you know, really what you were saying that we do have to, you know, take these results with some caution as we're applying in them to today. But I do think there's, there is consistency over time. Sure, that, that very helpful response. You, you could add work from home depends on the technology and sure. whether yeah. you know, we were forced, we're now using Zoom, which we didn't have in 2015. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, many things. Are there other questions? Let's see. Others. Um, many thanks for your contribution, Jonathan. Thank you. Let me stop sharing. I should have done that a while ago. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yes, thank you, everybody. I would like to uh, thank all the presenters and uh, attendees uh, for their presentation and, uh, and questions. Our conference continues tomorrow, 8 o'clock West European time. Maybe a little bit early for our American uh, viewers at the moment. Uh, but uh, you can watch all the recordings of the presentations are accessible through the ISCOS conference forum. Uh, and uh, they should be available uh, by, uh, by tomorrow. So thanks again and enjoy uh, your day or uh, remainder of you. Thank you. Thank you. We are excited to announce the launch of Human Capital Innovation's new e-magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. We hope you'll check out our first issue and please let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.